0: I think AA and Al-Anon is a great life raft. I, I always give them that credit. When I'm doing individual therapy is, if you come in here and you have a problem in your relationship, particularly your marriage, and you feel great when you leave, I have done you a disservice. I should give you direction and insight and support and all of that, but if you're feeling as if everything is resolved when you have left my office, I have taken away that opportunity for you and your partner to actually engage. And I think that is one of the biggest issues with AA, NA, Elanon all of these other groups, is that you go and get all of the resolution within it, and it creates this barrier between partners that they can't really argue about.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the State of Mind podcast, bringing you conversations about mental health that change lives. My name is Mike Stroh. I'm living in long-term recovery from a variety of mental health and addiction problems. I am a practicing psychotherapist, public speaker, and mindfulness teacher. My hope is that by listening to this podcast, you will learn that you are empowered by your experience, not inhibited. And through these conversations, you will get insight into how you can cultivate your innate capacity for resilience and well being. On today's episode, my guest is Travis Thompson. Travis is a licensed marriage and family therapist with extensive experience in addiction therapy, with a focus on how addiction impacts systems of people from couples to families and entire communities. Travis has worked with adults and adolescents diagnosed with severe substance abuse and mental illness. He's worked in both long-term care and shorter term treatment facilities, including intensive outpatient programs for mental health and substance addiction, as well as outpatient clinics with a family centered focus. In addition to his clinical work, Travis has created Programming at Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Facilities and runs a private practice focused on helping couples and families in early recovery. Drawing from his own personal experience as an addiction and recovery, Travis is passionate about helping others navigate the challenges of addiction and to develop sustainable recovery strategies. Travis has a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, and he is currently pursuing his PhD, with a focus on the development and administration of programs for individuals with concurrent mental health and substance addiction disorders. On today's episode, we talk about Travis's new book, To Those Left Behind, helping partners and families understand and heal from addictions. We cover a variety of topics on this episode, We get a little bit of insight into family systems theory, addiction recovery practices and theories and approaches. I share a little bit of my own personal journey with my wife and how my wife and I worked through our struggles in my early recovery. I do get a little bit personal there travis shares a host of insights and is very wise and concise with his suggestions with his wisdom and he helps clarify a lot of the struggles that people have and families have in entering recovery sustaining recovery and moving into the lives that they want to create for themselves we talk a little bit about the societal governmental institutional struggles and challenges with treating addiction and recovery and homelessness and we talk about ways that that might change and what we can do about that on an individual level and on a societal level i apologize my audio is not great on this episode i messed up the microphone settings so i hope you forgive me for that it's not too bad anyhow without further ado i bring you the very wise Travis Thompson. Hi, Travis. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me about your book and your work and your experience in the world of addiction and family recovery. So if you can just introduce yourself, tell people a little bit about your life, your history, what brings you here and what drew you to write the book that we'll be talking about to those left behind and and anything else you think is uh, important information. It's not always the case, but often the case that people that end up in these positions have some sort of connection to the content that they're studying, teaching, working with. Do you you have much personal connection to this kind of stuff? And if so, what is that?
0: Sure. Yeah. For me, it was um, early on, um, I would say like 15, 16 years old. I was, the term that I use is a sprinter, so it it didn't like build up over 10 years, Um, and I think that's partially due to my place in the family system and a whole bunch of other things, but um, that was me uh, 15, starting like 15, 16, um, then around uh, beginning of 17, um, I spent some time not so voluntarily in a mental health facility because of all of it. Um, and so that was for me, the beginning of really realizing a lot of it. And of course, just like anybody, um, if you're paying attention enough, you see it around you either in, you know, extended family or close friends and things like that. So after I started paying attention more, I started noticing it. And even, especially as an adult, I've started to notice it as well.
1: Yeah. And I guess did did you just sort of make the decision or how did you get into the counseling world? And I'm curious, kind of as a somewhat aspiring academic, and you do talk about this in the book, how you blend what we know academically or through research and et cetera, with real life experience and real blending it into people's problems, that kind of thing. I guess after you had your experience when you were younger, were you drawn to work in this field, I guess, or like what were you what not everybody says I'm gonna you know become a therapist and help people like me, or whatever yeah. yeah,
0: so for me, when I was younger, I started to realize that I had an ability to kind of read people or their situation. um at first, it was just a curiosity. I just thought it was kind of fun to be able to go oh, so this is why you're anxious and frustrated and people got real uncomfortable (laughs) with it. And so I kind of (laughs) backed off of saying it as often. Um, But I I had just kind of this innate skill to be able to engage people that way. Um, As I got older, uh, I started to realize the value of it more. And when I got into college, I started to realize that the way that I was thinking about psychology and mental health was not exactly what I was being taught. Now, I'm not out of some complete left field, but I started to realize that there were things that I could actually contribute. And I, I went to grad school and there they do community mental health. Like you just take in clients for like $10 a session, right? And uh, I started to realize that if I just worked with, you know, basic anxiety, basic depression, like here are the skills, you're here for five sessions, I would not make it. So I started tending towards the more severe and significant cases and found a love for it. So I kind of rediscovered that part of myself to engage with. And I found that I was much more engaged, much more excited, I was thinking innovation and all of those things when it came to those severe cases.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's maybe that's a good segue into part of the book. It's my mind wants to ask you five questions at once. Maybe, yeah, just starting with, I, d- I don't know the difference. I mean, I have some intuition or understanding of the difference between the U.S. and the Canadian healthcare system and and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Even here, each province is different in terms of the healthcare delivery, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: we have some basic universal access to sort of detox, recovery, uh, sort of detox and, like, treatment facilities but it's pretty haphazard, et cetera, that kind of thing. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Maybe, I don't know if you can weave this into what you, in your book, sort of you outline really nicely, sort of the differences, the difference in approach. So I think you have like the medical model, the moral Mm -hmm. behavioral, I think. Mm -hmm. And was there a fourth one?
0: Neurological and attachment. Okay.
1: That was one. Okay. And okay. So I I guess, You describe and one of the biggest a criticism of the modern mental health care delivery service model is cramming people through, you know, a CBT, like a cognitive behavioral Mm -hmm. short term treatment process or whatever, or, you know, a solution focused kind of thing. And those things tend not to be enough think might be the right word for people that are really struggling with a variety of, of things. Mm-hmm. So like you described that sort of depression, anxiety, here's some skills and all those things are useful to help people treat the symptoms. And I like you point mm-hmm. out, I'm jumping around too much, but can you maybe just okay. point to that, like uh, those sort of different categories of how we describe addiction and the limitations of kind of our surface level treatments towards it?
0: The different models that I outline typically have followed a history and I go into an explanation of how they came about. But the very beginning was this moral model, which was don't do it, you dumb idiot. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, for some strange yeah. reason, shame didn't work. Yeah. Complete shocker. <laughs> uh, um, uh, then then we kind of got into this more medical ish area And that has persisted to this day. And that's where you see a lot of these behavioral therapies come from, which is addressing symptomology. Um, And one of the things that I used to tell, um, you know, men and women in in inpatient facilities is if you were just looking for skills and information, I could have given you a pamphlet and sent you home. If that's all it took and that's all this is, is to get some good info. I I mean, I'll even, I'll sell you a book now, Um, but back then it was just, well, I'll just give you this info. Um, And and the reason that, well, I think there's a few reasons why this has developed the way that it has. Um, Number one, it's easily uh, identifiable and it's easy to track. So you can see reduction in symptoms. Um, One of the big criticisms that I have is, well, you're obviously going to see a reduction in symptoms when they're removed from their everyday life and responsibilities. I don't think that I don't think that's special to your specific treatment. Um, and you also see how, to put it quite frankly, in the U.S., it's easy to charge insurance for it because it's been so repeatedly studied. Um, it's shown to be "quote unquote" the most effective thing. Um, it may or may not be, but I do know that there have been so many repeated studies of it of course it's going to look like the most effective because we're sharpening a knife over and over and over instead of just looking for other tools to see how it works and so that tends to be what the american system does is it's let me give you this behavioral therapy make sure you're okay and then you leave here's some aftercare good luck with it
1: yeah and so and actually yeah you you point that out in the book really nicely when people Go back into the family systems that Mm -hmm. they came from and they're, they're re, I guess, re immersed in all the things that contributed to them getting to where they got, I guess, Mm -hmm. Um, something like that. Maybe maybe you can just expand a bit more on the, because certainly it's the case here. The medicalization of addiction. So, I used to be a part of this program at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, mm-hmm. which is the biggest mental health hospital in Canada. It's a very medicalized model mm-hmm. of, of treatment. And I do my best to try to be understanding. We have limitations, our governments don't have mm-hmm. money, and you know, all the kind of things that contribute to this let's pump them through the system and send them out the door kind of idea. Sure. Just to speak to like the complicated nature of trying to help people in these situations, and sure, yeah, if if there could be, I don't know, sort of that idea of like we can only go from where we are now. Like, how do you see maybe the sort of institutionalization treatment models improving or mm-hmm. not uh, contributing to this sort of revolving door? Idea?
0: One of the biggest ways that we can help addiction long-term is shoring up and um, embracing a healthy family system. Um, Because we actually have known for a very long time that you can bring someone into treatment and you can quote unquote, get them well, and you send them home and they go right back. We've known this in the US since the fifties, where we used to do it. And I talked about this in the book, the Philadelphia Child Guidance Center, Yeah. Um, yeah, We've known this for a long time that you can get kids right or you can get people right. You send them home and it's pretty quick. You can even see this with like medication compliance. Right. You get them into facilities. They take it every day. You send them home within a week. It's over. Right. Um, I would say that when it comes to the institutionalization of it, the biggest argument that I put forth against this whole medical disease model. Right. Is pretty short and simple. It's, I've never heard of a disease that you could talk your way out of. Right. And so when people say, well, it's this medical disease, it's this treatment, you know, it's like type one diabetes, it's like cancer. It's like, well, you know, people can get therapy and then all of a sudden not drink again. So I'm not quite sure how that fits a medical model when therapy and relationships heal it it seems to be you know the square peg in a round hole sort of thing and i understand why because you know you have the guy with a broken leg right next to the alcoholic in the er and you can't blame the doctors for that (laughs) they've got to treat as many people as they can as effectively as they can and so it's kind of been co-opted into an area that it doesn't quite fit
1: Mm. yeah that's Great. I, when I do psychoeducation stuff, I show this really funny video uh, that was made to sort of mock the difference in how we treat the physical ailments versus the whatever mental health ones. Mm-hmm. And and you also talk in the book. So if we say, and maybe this can blend into it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on AA, and Al-Anon and that kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. those were certainly huge parts of my journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my wife's so yeah so the if it is a disease or whatever then you say okay just treat the symptoms and that feeds the, the beast of the pharmaceutical industry in some sense of like well <laughs> let's just keep pumping these people with these medications sure. to fix them whatever and and maybe also how you understand because in aa right alcoholism is a family disease is mm-hmm. what is, is said right and and they don't mean disease the same way the medical model says disease which which i find interesting yeah
0: it depends on the area you're in because okay. sometimes they do sometimes they like very much AA? do yeah yeah there's okay. some yeah. there are some that actually do will will be 100% on board that it's a disease how you treat it they'll see it differently um right okay.
2: right
0: the big issue in aa alanon, na all of those other things what the family system is, they acknowledge it as a family issue. Right. But then separate everybody and tell everybody individually it's a family issue. Okay. So, again, we've also known from things like marriage research that if a couple is going to get, is thinking about divorce and you give them each separate individual therapy, they're more likely to get divorced than if you did no therapy at all. So that's one of the big issues is, it you know, places like AA and Al-Anon, they're amazing and they're a godsend for so many people, but you can't say it's a family issue and then separate people and hope that that solves the family issue.
1: Right. Yeah. You mentioned something like that in the book very uh, clearly uh, about how, yeah, when people have separate counseling, they end up divorced. I guess... Do you, what do we do about that, I guess, in some sense? Because mm-hmm. I think one reason I'd love to understand your thoughts on this as a clinician, um, mm-hmm. when I'm working with people who are struggling with substance use. Mm-hmm. I'm I, and I'm very clear I like, I'm biased towards these step models because there's not much else out there that you can mm-hmm. access twenty four seven for free, et cetera. It does work. You know mm-hmm. clearly it works. I get why people are hesitant to do the 12-step stuff or whatever. But yeah, what do we, I guess, do about that? And I guess to your point too, for my wife and I, I guess when I entered recovery or whatever, I did have, I had a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. I had AA, I had al on even because I have a brother who lives with schizophrenia, which I mm-hmm. want to ask you about too. You sure. That in the book. You also write about this in the book very nicely, like, when one person is sort of recovering, so to speak, the other person is left kind of having to Mm -hmm. bear the burden of all kinds of shit. I'm asking about five questions at once, but so (laughs) the, the original question was like, what do we do about these sort of pull? Like, how do we Mm -hmm. help people? Um, and my wife and I, my wife eventually after I was changing and being more responsible and kind of changing, I guess she, came to her own decision to go to Al-Anon to get help as well. Mm -hmm. And we also had marriage therapy. So, yeah. So I guess, can you maybe try to make sense of that jumbled thought stream and and make it somewhat
0: coherent? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. When when I do work with people and I work with couples, I don't ever advise against it wholeheartedly. Right. I think AA and Al-Anon is a great life raft in the middle of it because I think, the quote in the book is I don't know of anybody else that will pick you up at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday behind a dumpster for free. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: you know, the, I, I always give them that credit. They're an amazing life raft for so many people. Um, what I have seen as a therapist, particularly with couples, is it starts to create a rift between them because the energy is lost between the couple. It's one of the things that I focus on when I'm doing individual therapy is if you come in here and you have a problem in your relationship, particularly your marriage, and you feel great when you leave, I have done you a disservice because then you're not going to go work on it with them. I, I should give you direction and insight and support and all of that. But if you're feeling as if everything is resolved when you have left my office, I have taken away that opportunity for you and your partner to actually engage. And I think that is one of the biggest issues with AA, NA, al all of these other groups is that you go and get all of the resolution within it. And it creates this barrier between partners that they can't really argue about because I'm sure that they've said they've pleaded or prayed or whatever it was saying, if you would just get sober, it would be better. Well, then they got what they wanted and they realized it wasn't enough, but now they can't argue with it because that's what they wanted for so long. And so you sit with this barrier between two people that nobody wants to touch because they feel like everything's going to fall apart, but they also can't argue with because it's what they begged for. Right. And so people will sit in this limbo indefinitely and not really be all that happy. Um, and they'll feel like they can't do anything about it as well. And so that's kind of where I fall on it is short term, yeah, it keeps people alive. Um, long term, it has a very high tendency to keep you emotionally distant from your partner.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. That's it's very insightful. The it's very succinct, that idea that um you hoped and prayed the person would get sober. Then they did. You got what mm-hmm. you asked for, but ultimately, in some ways, it relates to the idea of um, drugs are not the problem; they're the solution, right? You remove sure. the solution, the problem's still there, right? Yes. And the addict is recovering and and enjoying that, and and of course, the partner or the family is left with their own stuff, I guess. So, what would you say to the partner or spouse looking for help here, right? So for the, the person, the, you know, the addict, the alcoholic, whatever it is, enters recovery, starts getting well, they're having their own resolution to their own problems, whatever. But the spouse, the family system around them, I I think we can assume wants to heal, Mm -hmm. but also has all their own resentments and frustrations and issues with what has gone on and how do we help? Yeah. How do we help those people move forward?
0: So this starts very <laughs> harsh but ends well okay <laughs> yes. i have had so many people come in and say i cannot stand his drinking i can't stand her use and my next question is how long have they been doing it and they say oh seven years okay you can't hate something for seven years and not get anything out of it tangible or intangible there is something you're getting and i talk about this in the book how um codependent relationships form and how they function, where partners and families, if they stay involved with it past like a, a breaking point, they're still receiving something, whether it's hope for the future or trying to resolve their own issues, whether it's deflecting their own things onto the partner, like, you know, maybe maybe I'm not good with money and I've racked up credit card debt, but look at my husband over there. See, look at how bad he is. That's the more extreme version. Um, But the inner, you know, some of the hidden things are maybe I don't feel worthy in myself, but I feel worthy in being a helper. And so I will continue this and I will not lower my anxiety and feel it resolved because if I do that, then I lose a part of myself. So when I'm talking with couples and families, You obviously have to deal with your own stuff, but part of that is recognizing that you're playing a role here if you're involved, okay? You're doing something, and the way to find that healing is for everybody involved to make a resolution that they're getting healthy with boundaries, support, you know, their own interactions, and inviting the addict along with them, but there's a caveat, you cannot demand they come with you and you have to get healthy even when they don't and so i I outline this in the book particularly with i think it's in the couples chapter where you you can say something like i'm doing this i'm getting healthy no matter what happens i'm inviting you to come along with me and i have seen that work so much so much more effectively than anything else, threats of divorce, threats of any of these things. That, for me, in my own practice, has been absolutely astounding.
1: Yeah, you have a great, I actually copied and pasted, you you give a nice template for the letter, Mm -hmm. or or like a framework for how you could communicate this to a loved one. Um, Mm -hmm. So you give a framework for someone. So maybe just to kind of introduce this idea, if you are somebody who needs to have, or wants to have a conversation like this with somebody you're caring for. You know, on page 158 of Travis's book, there's a great uh, way to do that. I am just gonna read it. So I acknowledge and take responsibility for my role in your addiction. I have made years of compromises in my soul and the health of our relationship. I did not leave when I said I would or followed through on what I said was required. For that, I allowed our relationship to fall apart. However, I do not take responsibility for your addiction or how it has impacted us. I do not apologize for your addiction, but I do apologize for creating an environment where your addiction was tolerated and grown. I am taking a journey towards health. I am inviting you to join me on this journey. If you do not, I will go without you and find a better version of myself. I request that you do what I have asked of you for your health and our relationship. I hope one day we can find a new life together that is better than we ever had. That's pretty good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd hope so, considering I wrote it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I want to maybe speak to a little bit of, it's like a flip side of this, but it totally applies. Mm -hmm. I think, and just to... For more sort of disclosure purposes so i guess i my drug of choice was weed and the the crazy part about that is like i knew it wouldn't kill me so i just mm-hmm. decided at 15 years old that the other drugs that i was doing would kill me so why not do this um you know that's a good sign of a of an addict to be um <laughs> so when i got sober uh mm-hmm. or whatever entered recovery I remember as I was changing and becoming this new person, Mm -hmm. my sponsor always said to me, you signed a marriage contract with your wife. Mm -hmm. She signed it, agreed to it. Now you've rewritten the terms of the agreement and you're Mm -hmm. expecting her to agree to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that obviously wasn't fair. And so I had to sort of swallow that pill continuously for a while. But at some point, right, and this can go both ways, I think, So whether it's the partner or the person in recovery, at some point, as you outline nicely here, I will go without you and find a better version of myself, whether or not you come with me. So how do you kind of help couples navigate that? And I guess it's different for every couple, but at some point, right, one person either decides to come along or does not. Sure. And yeah.
0: I talk in the codependency chapter about these dynamics and how we engage people. And there's actually predictable patterns between the addict and those that enable them. Um, And one of those mitigating factors is simply intensity, where that is what keeps the relationship together. That's what makes people feel close. And when we have a couple that is looking at this way forward, you cannot hope to have the healthy relationship later you have to start it now and one of the ways that you rid intensity and you engage vulnerability and intimacy um, is creating boundaries and expectations outside of that immediate moment if you say things and you threaten things in the moment and with high levels of anxiety that's an ultimatum and it hardly if ever works right and so for those that want to have this change, you have to have effective boundaries that you understand, you can agree to, you have other people that will help you live them out. And once you present it that way, an intensity is yanked out of the dynamic, that's where the addict can really decide if that vulnerability or that intimacy is worth it, if they're willing to engage that or not. But the partner gets the ability To make a decision in peace and can move on with their lives at that point if that's what plays out.
1: Can you that's a yeah, you do outline the difference between ultimatums and boundaries. So yeah, can you kind of trying to think of any personal examples here that we work through? But yeah, just give some examples of kind of like clear distinctions. I mean, you kind of did there, but like how those ultimatums pop up in the moment and what a healthy boundary looks like over time, as opposed to an
0: ultimatum. The ultimatums that often are expressed are things like, I'm going to leave you if, or I'm taking the kids if, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And they're both made up and spoken in levels of high emotional intensity. You find another bottle right? Or also let's take addiction out of it all together. You see a message from an ex-girlfriend on Facebook, (laughs) right? That's where this super high level comes from. Uh, boundaries are different. And I outline a way to see them and a way to utilize them where they're not just made in the calm, but they're founded on specific things. Um, You have the posts in the ground because I talk about it as a fence. You have the posts in the ground are the core beliefs and values that you have. Right. Those are, you know, I want to live a healthy life. I want to see progression. I want our kids to be loved. Those are the unshakable things that nobody's going to argue with. Right. Um, Then you have the boards that are across. These are the specific expectations that are rooted in the beliefs that you have. So, I expect you to go to all of your therapy appointments because it'll help you love your kids better and it'll help love me better and we can move forward, right? Those are rooted in the core beliefs. And then finally, is the little warning sign. And I'm from the American South. And so, our warning signs are maybe a little bit culturally jarring. <laughs> 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 maybe you guys up in Canada. Uh, yeah. But we, uh, sometimes we have signs like, um, you know, due to the rising cost of ammo, no warning shots will be fired, right? <laughs> yeah, um, so it, it's that if this happens, this is what's going to follow through. If you right. cross these boundaries, if you go through this, this is what's going to happen. And that sign is clearly posted. You're not hiding anything. But if anybody comes up to that boundary, they know exactly what to expect. And so you're not acting on rage. You're not acting on whatever it is. There's a clear understanding of what's expected. If they break it, you're not doing anything crazy. You're just following through on what was already spoken about. Right. And
1: can you, so from that point, as you said uh, somewhat earlier, where I work with a lot of teens too, um, and what I often tried to guide parents to see is their role in the teen's behavior, right? And so so at that point, if, if the sign, you know, partner A comes up to the sign, breaks a rule or et cetera, how or how have you worked with couples or people to deal with their own issues that cause them not to hold the boundary kind of thing? Because it's so hard for people.
0: So you can get boundaries that are individually driven. That typically comes from a healthier long-term perspective, right? Like I I have boundaries for myself and my wife and she has them for me. Like some basic ones are don't ram a car into the house. (laughs) That's a boundary (laughs) we have, right? Uh, But when you look at people that are in the midst of struggling... Oftentimes, boundaries are supported by other people, Um, and I I talk a lot about having um, a partner or a spouse finding others that have gone through it, and so maybe you're not so great at building fences, but you can call on a neighbor who is, and they can help you engage this well until you feel comfortable enough to do it on your own, and then you can build them however you see fit.
1: Just remember it. and that's where things like al-anon right or are having mm-hmm. sort of recovery groups or peers that can help you is so useful mm-hmm. um did you do talk about it in the book to not to sort of say i'm gonna leave if you do blank and then blank happens and you leave and you got nowhere to go <laughs> so mm-hmm. i think you mentioned like having some sort of plan in place for sure. for when the boundary gets crossed and you have to take action
0: mm-hmm. A lot of times, just having that follow through does enough, but you have to mean it. So I'll have spouses that will have what we call go bags, where literally they'll just pack up everything they would need for like a week and they keep it in a suitcase. And so if that boundary is crossed, it isn't, oh, let me get everything together. It's they know where they're going. They know what's happening. They're gone. I have other people that have said, you know, gone the more drastic route where they'll talk about divorce and they have um, a lawyer on speed dial and they'll show the partner, this is who I'm calling as soon as this happens, I'm following through. And so it's more of a trigger than it is a buildup at that point. And so that boundary is dependent on what the person can actually agree to and is aligned with their values. But I've even had couples in here Or I'll say, all right, tell her you're going to divorce her, show her the number. And she'll sit here and be really angry. And I'll just sit here super calm and say, I don't know what you want from me. This is what he said he's going to do. And he's going to follow through.
1: And I guess, how do you think about or how do you help guide that person in the couple to really act on that, right? Because there's so much, as you said earlier, It's hard for people to accept that they get something out of the enabling or out of the allowing Mm -hmm. themselves to be part of the system is it is it you work with their sort of beliefs their fears their sense of inadequacy or whatever there's some sort of fear wrapped up in if i'm alone then i have to deal with my own problems kind of idea
0: so in a in an environment where someone's deep in addiction the one thing that i don't want to do as a therapist is over the partner past what they can handle and so a lot of the beginning discussions are more what they need uh, and some light recognition that they're having an influence on all of this because <laughs> i can't imagine going through all of the the addiction for all of those years and barely keeping your head above water and then having a therapist give you weight to hold. And so a lot of the beginning of it is just saying, hey, here's what's happening. This is what's going on. This is what's going to happen next if you don't follow through. And then you lead into it after, you know, things follow through, then we get more into it. So at the beginning, it's much more recognition and acknowledgement than actually working on it. Yeah. Yeah, that
1: makes sense. And I love your forthrightness, I guess, at certain points in the book, <laughs> where you say, like, I'm going to get on a soapbox kind of idea uh, or a rant. I want to read, I, I really admire a couple, well, like that, your, the way that you are in that way, and it comes out in some really nice ways, and I definitely agree in terms of how, I'm just going to read this and then we can talk about it. So. Say many practitioners have attempted to convince addicts that their addiction is outside of them and others have said that it is not their fault. Both are wrong. Addiction is not a set of particular symptoms. It is also not something that happens without the will of an individual. Addiction is something that has slowly eaten someone away over time. Sure. They were not addicted to alcohol when they were a teenager, but they did sacrifice relationships for their own selfish desires. Retirement did not bring on addiction, but decades of distraction from their soul and relationships with others did. Addiction is not special, but the result of years of unresolved pain and self-centered ambition. That's mm-hmm. nice and like right to the, kind of the point. <laughs> That's also, I, I would say like very much in alignment with the AA understanding, right? Of the self-centered mm-hmm. nature of addiction. Um, sure yeah can you maybe just talk a bit more of that or have you seen couples or worked with people who kind of were marred in believing that like this is somehow no one's to blame here so therefore yeah
0: one of the biggest reasons that i wrote this book is for the partners of addicts that i've seen in therapy and they experience incredible trauma I mean, we we talk so much and there's so much research about, you know, the trauma of an overdose and what that does to an addict or alcohol poisoning or DUIs and all of that. And that's all well and good. But what about the person who has sat through all of it and hasn't been able to drink? They've had to sit through all of this and they haven't been able to use drugs. What happens to them? Right. If we just look at them and say, you know what, this is just a disease It's something you're going to have to learn and work with that looks to the partner in the family and says, sorry, deal with it. And I've had too many clients come in and just feel like they have nothing to stand on when in reality they have years worth of trauma, not just secondary trauma, but things that they've experienced and witnessed themselves. So for me, that was one of the biggest points in writing this whole book is to those left behind, the no ones that aren't given a voice in all of this. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, I'm going to read, it's sort of like from the next page. Um, so you say, how incredibly short-sighted and selfish it is to blame addiction on the disease and tell loved ones that they should just accept what happened because someone was "quote unquote" sick. So many families and significant others are robbed of the opportunity to work on their own pain because a recovering addict was told it was not their fault. I love this. This is absolute garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Addicts are responsible for their past actions and future work. If we do not present them with the ability to recognize their power in a decision, then we also cripple them in recovery efforts. Without engagement in the pain and decisions that someone caused, addicts must simply wait for it all to fall apart again. Isn't that how a disease works? You just wait for it to come back and everyone else has to deal with it. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing.
0: I'm not known for uh, holding back in things like writing and public speaking. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean it's absolutely it's absolutely the truth. You you end up with a prejudice of low expectations.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes. And
0: you 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 hand addicts like, look, you know, it's not your fault. You know, you're just learning things. It's a disease. And you you treat them with like little kid gloves. And you say, you know what, buddy? It's not your fault. You know, we're all learning here and all of that. They're not children. They might emotionally be, because I write about that. But you you can't hand them the emotional responsibility of a 12-year-old and wonder why they can't grow into the adult parent or spouse that they need to be. It just doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah. And maybe I'm just thinking about it, in terms of the complex mental illness stuff. I think it's maybe a good opportunity to just insert that concept. Like for my brother, who lives with schizophrenia, probably brought on by drug use, probably mostly cannabis, um, probably a miracle. And I remember psychiatrists telling me it's a miracle I didn't develop schizophrenia as well, since I have sort of the genetic predisposition. Until, so my brother for 10 years, probably a bit longer, drugs, jail, mental health institution, community service, back into the home, drugs, jail, Mm -hmm. like that went on for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And until my mom was like, you're going to live on the street or you're going to have to live in community housing, which I don't know about down there, but here it's not pleasant. It's not great. (laughs) <laughs> no, but until that happened, he, it's hard to know exactly. Um, I actually have a podcast episode with him where I try to pull this stuff out of him. But he, until that happened, he would not embrace the fact that he was really sick and mm-hmm. or, or maybe, yeah, and do the things he had to do, so to speak. So I think that's a good example, right? In some sense of like, look, you might be sick and got all kinds of issues, but you're still responsible. And I do believe like people in psychosis or whatever, um, I've had many encounters on the street or in public spaces where people in psychosis kind of come up to me and they, or whatever. I, I remember one per- thing in particular. I was at a public library, and in, in Toronto, our public library system is quite vast and it often is a home, right, for homeless people in some sense. Mm-hmm. And some guy came up to me, my wife and kids, and another parent and their kids uh and was something like kind of looked at me he's like i can't remember he said something like the godfather's coming after you like stop touching your kids we're gonna get you blah 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 blah. and i just paused for a second and i looked him right in the eye and i was like are you okay Mm -hmm. and he just froze and he walked away Mm -hmm. i guess the point of telling that story is i do think from the days and hours and months maybe that I've spent in psychiatric institutions with my brother, most of the time, a part of these people when they're in psychosis that is present and is aware sure. and always trying to speak to that. Mm-hmm. So even in those cases, I think part of them knows they are responsible for their their shit.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and, and but that gets, and I know it's a pretty bad scene in the US right now. It's similar here in Canada on the West Coast, at least where the weather is good, but mm-hmm. we've just completely let go of this idea that if you're mentally ill and an addict, you're not responsible, or, or we just have to let you be. It's just madness. Yeah.
0: It's, you know, this is <clears throat> one of the things that drives me absolutely insane, because as a clinician, Working in those mental health facilities, and my favorite joke is, I can't tell you how many times I've met Jesus in mental health facilities. (laughs) I've met a white Jesus, I've met a Hispanic Jesus, I've met a black Jesus, Like, (laughs) right? That part of the mental health, okay, we'll, we'll work on that. What was absolutely maddening is for us to say, this is what we need, this is how we need to do it. And the family goes, eh. We're like you you need to hold them accountable you need to do all this well i don't know and we're, they got arrested what are you talking about you don't know and then you come especially um in places california like san francisco's turned into an absolute yeah. dystopian yeah. nightmare yeah. and i i truly believe one of the biggest things is you have the government trying to be the family but it's disconnected and it's very much just about What can we offer and give with no accountability? And so, you know, homeless, if you interview them, they're like, hey, you know, let's get you housing. Let's get you all this. And I don't want housing. I'm fine. And so we're throwing all of these things that one, a lot of them don't even want. Um, But two, we're not engaging the family system ahead of time. And then we're trying to be the family after it's all fallen apart, And I I truly believe those two things are related because family is the most protective measure you can have. Like I have mental health disorders. My family kept me from going all the way off the deep end. That doesn't mean I don't have them, but it does mean that it was managed way earlier to the point where I'm completely independent. I have no issues now.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that point up too. Yeah. Because without, I I think, I, I think there's research on this particularly, but People who do have complex mental illness and have family support have—I mean, it's not rocket science—but have much better outcomes, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> what a surprise! Um, do Do you know much about the deinstitutionalization kind of movement? And as far as I understand it. The, the resources were supposed to be reinvested in other forms or treatment models or whatever. Of course, that didn't happen, right? But clearly, whatever we're doing now is not working. There's an area in Vancouver, East Hastings Street, which which is, I love, you say, I'm going to steal the words of dystopian nightmare. It's fucking insane. Like in Vancouver, you see these beautiful mountains. It's Vancouver's a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And then you go downtown to East Hastings and for about a kilometer or half a mile, maybe a mile, it's just junkies and drugs. Mm -hmm. And and you can see people shooting up. I mean, it's just crazy. Mm -hmm. And it obviously it is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I, I think I try to teach my kids. My brother's like pretty well now he works and which is amazing. Like he's got a relatively good life. But when we see people on the street yelling and screaming at nothing or homeless people and my kids kind of get curious or whatever, mm-hmm. um, I guess what I try to understand myself and help them understand is it is so difficult to help somebody in that situation. Sure. Yeah. So how how do you, I don't, I mean, I don't, I know you don't assume to have an answer, so to speak, but like what, how do we as a society move in the direction of something that's like more effective for these people?
0: So as a marriage and family therapist, and that being what I write a lot about, what I speak about, and all of that, it, I, I truly believe that the degradation of the family has pushed the government into being the family, because you can actually track with people groups, you know, things like um, single parent households, Right that they have this skyrocket amount of mental health and addiction, right? Does that mean that they're specifically worse people? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that there's certainly a reason for it. And so what unfortunately has ended up happening in the US because we're so disconnected from charity and welfare um, is that you just say, we'll throw more money at it. No. Um, But that's what it's ended up being, and it's almost developed into this narrative of, well, if you don't throw more money at it, you must hate them. And instead of the accountability, right, instead of taking that institutional stuff and saying, here's the opportunity, if you don't take it, sorry, we're not giving you anything else, here's the way out, it's free, do it, if not... I'm not going to hand you crack pipes. I'm not going to hand you all of these things because if you don't experience the consequence now, it will come later as AA will say in jails, institutions, and in death, I'd rather you experience an overdose now than a year from now when your use has increased and then you have an overdose. And so for me, it's just pushing, pushing it further and further down in the name of being loving and caring.
1: The idea around compa- the boundary between compassion and responsibility and this pseudo, I'm a good person because mm. I'm allowing this person to slowly kill themselves <laughs> kind of idea. It's, it's very, it's so, it's hard to often like put a finger on it and it's very hard I find for people to, I don't know if it's defenses or projections, mm. but it's very hard for people to accept that that is a real thing and that it really hurts, it's harmful, I guess, or it's not conducive to good outcomes.
0: So let me be clear on a lot of my position. I'm going to start my dissertation research um, in late fall. Um, I hope to do it in my local jail, the Rutherford County Jail, focusing on relapse and recidivism. I have a great heart for all of these things. I want it to be better. My seemingly harsh demeanor has nothing to do whether I care about people or I'm looking down on them. I've actually devoted the whole five years of my PhD work and hopefully a future part of my career to helping these people, right? And so for me, this is the marriage of all of those where we would rather feel good by posting about it or throwing $5 and seeming like we're virtuous then actually engaging and pushing past the people that are looking for money and saying, okay, so what actually works here? In the U.S., the virtue signaling is absolutely atrocious. Um, But that's what a lot of it is. Look at me. I'm a good person because I want them to have these resources instead of holding them accountable, which is actually more helpful. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It It is is out of control. control. Um, The the virtue signaling kind of stuff. But but, I think... And, and at the, the same, same time, it's understandable why, why people, people do that, that because mm-hmm. sometimes some sense sense it's just easier. And, and it does take a little a bit, bit of courage and humility to look at ourselves, ourselves. and I acknowledge that. Although at the same, same time, we're, we're just so resistant to it. It is, mm-hmm. it is, um, well,
0: know. It, yeah. the one of the big risks of helping these people is that I get dirty, right? And so if you want to help, the homeless guy on the side of the road. Don't just hand him money. You can give food, I guess. Um, Why don't you point him towards resources that already exists? But in order to really help people that desperately need help, if we refuse to get dirty ourselves, then all we're doing is perpetuating it further, but it makes us feel good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's it's such such a... a real issue and it is that simple in some sense and at the same, same time people again just don't want to accept those facts and, and fair in fairness, fairness I don't blame them, them. it's like you like, wants, wants to do that's incredibly, incredibly difficult work sitting in Oslo, you know from, from my own experience going own to get my brother to jail and jail, sitting and that was a disaster at the time too but mm-hmm. it's a lot of hard work and Sometimes, Sometimes I would prefer if we, we just said, said that. You know, no, what? It's, it's actually, actually really, really hard to complicated it, and nobody, nobody wants, wants to do it, it and that's, and that's why, why we're not solving the problem. It's for hard. Hard. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And especially, and this is one of the things that yeah. I wrote the book for. Is so, I'm I'm a therapist in the states. The insurance stuff with the states and mental health is a nightmare and so unethical. Um, so some people can't afford the rates. So I wrote a book about it. So instead of me sitting here and grandstanding and saying, oh, well, we should help all these people. Why don't you go do something about it? If you're going to complain about it, go do something about it. Right? And so people can't afford the hourly rate for therapy. Well, here's a $15 book. And while it might not be the same thing, we're doing something, something actually productive. And that's the big thing for me as a, you know, especially in addiction, it gets expensive because rehab's expensive. <laughs> and so um, instead of saying, this is the only way you can get help is by coming to my you know great shrine where we talk about all the magical things. It's, okay, what can I do to help people that might not be able to afford it because their spouse drained everything?
1: Right. Okay. So I okay, want to ask you what, what I also appreciate about the book is... Sort, sort of the the, the containers or the way you help frame a lot of these ideas and put them into coherent ideas. <laughs> uh can, can you explain a little,
0: little
1: bit sort of if, if we get a little academic for a minute just like, like a bit about family systems and, and then also towards I can at the, the end sort of tie in the emotion focused focus mm-hmm. therapies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and
2: so that and then I want to ask you about
1: the when you talk, talk about, about working with individual, individual clients, how do you help, help with those, those three boxes, boxes those, those sort of random life stuff, your yes. symptoms and
0: all this, and what can you can do about no it? So, so maybe, maybe just start, start with the family system, system stuff, and stuff and the EFT and, and that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The example that I give in the book is the American Midwest, where as um, we were migrating west, we realized that there were these things that could kill us called wolves and so we started wiping them out because we didn't want to die fair i get that right but the ecosystem started to shift to where there were deer that were outliving when they were supposed to because wolves killed the sick ones they killed the undersized ones right and so that population increased well if the deer increase so the other things that they eat decrease, right? And so in an ecosystem like that, even just introducing and moving things around has a drastic effect. Um, One of the ways that we've solved it, funnily enough, and sorry if there are any animal activists listening, we kill deer to save the forest. (laughs) Um, In therapy with family systems, you have to think of it this way, where if you make a shift in one area, it's going to shift dynamics with everybody else. You cannot take an addict in treatment and quote unquote fix them and send them back, right? Let's say you really did cure them, right? You send them back. If nobody else has changed, they're often unconsciously going to force them back into that addictive role, right? So you cannot just work on one person and this doesn't have to be therapy. It can simply be explanation or engagement or whatever it is, um, you can't sit them back and expect it all to be better. And that's what a lot of family systems and couples therapy is, is engaging that holistic aspect where everything shifts when you make a change. For EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy, I really love this because it engages the emotional and intimacy dynamic, where we go around simply what our inclinations or our impulses are. And we get into the vulnerability between couples, right? We start to really say what's underneath. My favorite modern phrase is we say the quiet part out loud. Um, We start to really engage and bring up those things. It's beautiful for two reasons. One, it's one of the most effective couples therapies in general. Two, you can really target what addicts are really needing as well as what their partners were missing or getting from it, right? Right. Because, you know, I can get anybody sober, I think was the phrase, I can get anybody sober for 50 bucks and a bunch of zip ties, right? Getting people sober isn't the problem, right? And so if we can engage it, and I love EFT for this, because we really get down and you change the interaction, and I can almost mold an ecosystem within a session, and then you send it out and you see how it interacts for the week, and then they come back and you make more adjustment, right? Right. And then they go back out to the point where they don't need me anymore. They just come back and go, well, we were fighting. We're not fighting so much. Now we're just talking and we've worked it out. So that's the big reason that I love all of that stuff is they go exist without me. They fire me and I'm happy about that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And And maybe maybe to my
1: own understanding, understanding, but but also I I think having personal examples are really like. It's helpful. So, so maybe you can, can help
0: clarify. clarify. So when I, when I, when I decided, decided to stop getting an eye drinking
1: and what all the things, things I was I doing, I told my wife,
0: I used to be a professional, professional poker player. player okay? okay. So, so that's, that's sort, sort of funny how, how it fits into the whole into thing. Because poker was actually the one thing that, thing that I did, did not, not do, do compulsively,
1: compulsively and that I kind <laughs> of managed with integrity and because it was, it was my, my lifeline, but I, I didn't have poker. God to what would, would have happened mm-hmm. to me. Um, so so I, I said to her, "I can't. I am. I, I, I went, went to this outpatient recovery, recovery program, program and, and, and I started, started to, to realize how bad shit crazy, crazy I was. <laughs> and and <laughs> I said <laughs> to my wife, wife I, "I need time, time off work. work. I can't, can't play poker right now. I'm a fucking like I'm. I started to learn how crazy I was. Why I had to be high 24 hours a day and her response, response and, and in fairness to her i had money or i was successful in that way like, like what's, what's the big deal We is your problem. problem like no like, no. like, like we, need we need to pay, pay the bills, bills and like, like no <laughs> you're not <laughs> taking, <laughs> you, not taking <laughs> you, you can take a week off or something like that sure so, so in, in that, that moment and I, I think this for me this applies to that letter we read earlier for me i had to make a decision that like
0: I don't care what other, what she says, like,
1: I need to take, take care, care of myself. Therefore, Therefore I'm going to do whatever I need to do to sober me. up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I lied to her about, about working. working and that was like a, a big step eight, nine thing for me Okay, to, 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 tell, to tell her eventually that I was lying to her about
2: working.
1: Mm-hmm. So in, in that, that moment,
0: I think, I think like, like what, what i needed, needed was acknowledgement and validation and
1: acceptance mm-hmm. what she needed was maybe i don't well i guess mm-hmm. like some mm-hmm. sort of a reassurance that we weren't yeah. gonna yeah. lose our yeah. house and da. But, but like because so maybe you can just, like, just like pick it that apart a little bit because i withdrew, because withdrew and, and lied
2: mm-hmm.
1: and mm-hmm. said fuck her <laughs> you <laughs> know yeah. yeah yeah and and she kind of you know like Again, Again, this is all on me. Like, like it's, not it's not really her fault. And I don't blame her for that or whatever. You know, and we sort of worked through that uh, over a few years. Or right. But anyway, yeah, maybe just like, like in that moment, you get, get two, two people, together. people together. One person says, "I need this." The other person says, "Hell no."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: like what's, what's going on there? there? I guess so.
0: Mike, how uncomfortable are you willing to be today?
2: Oh, I love <laughs> it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So one of the big things that I look for is what has become the stand-in for intimacy and relationship, right? And so if I had a couple in front of me and one of them said exactly what you said and the wife said the other thing, my initial thought with the wife would be, okay, so she's probably not a psychopath. Um, Why is she demanding that this happen? And some of my initial guesses would be like, okay, so maybe she doesn't even trust that he can make things work. And this is a compromise for what can happen. Or it could be that, look, I've already wanted to divorce you. This is the one thing that I need to be stable. Or maybe it's a step thing where there's you know, maybe if you can accomplish this, then we can move to this. Or, you know, maybe there's some of her own issues in it where it's like, uh, no, I suffered all of this time, you dumbass. Now give me the things that I need, right? Yeah. So yeah. from an EFT lens, that's immediately where I would start thinking. Obviously, I don't lead with that because people get, you know, real vulnerable. Yeah. If they get that too quickly, they yeah. yeah. don't come back. Um, <laughs> But like for you, it'd be more of, what is that sense of fear and vulnerability being honest about it, right? What is it that is wanting, keeping you engaging that? Some of the big questions would be like, are you willing to lose the house if that means that you had a better relationship? Or what is it that you're willing to risk to see if this will work? And being able to be open and honest about that is a huge ordeal because a lot of times it's much less the practical things as it is what's lying underneath. And so that's where I get a lot of the couple's things is especially in like relapse and recovery, they'll say big things like that. When in reality, they just either want their spouse back and don't know how to ask for it, or they have given them a prejudice of low expectations. So they'll take what they can get. Or maybe they have a sense of retribution where it's hey, dummy, I've suffered for this for 10 years. Give me something, too. So all of that is in play. It's just kind of dependent on, like, what their history is and how they act in session. Sort of in reflection reflection, and in our couples couples therapy and just just
1: as we work through this over over the years, years, for for me, I I wanted wanted to sober sober up since literally I started getting high at 12 and literally outside 24 hours a day until I was 30. So So for for me, it was was like, like, yeah, yeah, it was was fucking crazy, 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 to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) It was was connected to trafficking, drugs in high high school, school. like just madness. I managed to hold it together to to convince myself and her It was going to get get married married. Um, Um, because I thought that that would would save me in some sense.
0: sense. So So we we had had only been married for, I don't even think that long, eight months or something,
1: nine months together for a few years. So, so for me, it was I, I wanted to sober up probably since, since I was too. fifteen.
0: That the, the conscience in
1: my head had been telling me this forever. Finally, something happened in which I, I could listen, and act on that voice. So you nothing is going to stand, stand in the way of, way of me and this happening. And, and that, sure, that sure, that might have been, been sort of selfish or or arrogant, well, but I was willing to lose everything for her, obviously. Totally, totally a different, different story. story. I'm, I'm not willing to, to lose, lose everything, everything, you know, it's not a judgment, judgment at all. I mean, good for, for her. She, and, and so then and where where really where a lot of the events, events had to come and where, where I really had to carry the burden, burden was I lied to her, right? right? So, so I said I was, said I was playing poker. Basically, I basically I used to play quite high stakes. I basically was playing for pennies or dollars. Uh I wasn't, I wasn't losing, losing money, money, but I wasn't making money. making money. And I was spending money that I had saved, but that I told her I would save. Uh-huh.
2: Right.
1: So, so that was the thing that I was you about, where the money was coming from. And lying. Lying and, mm-hmm. and then once I, you mm-hmm. Talk, mm-hmm. talk about this, this in the book too, too the deep emotional shame. shame, like all, once I had about a year and a bit of recovery, and, and I had dealt with some of my own shame and guilt and self hatred and, and, and all that shit. It's so hard to work through. I got, got to the, the point, point where I said, "Okay, I don't hate myself. I'm not a useless piece of shit. I'm going to tell her about this and deal with the consequences." Mm-hmm. And then at this point, we had our first kid was born, so mm-hmm. that complicated matters, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and so obviously, obviously she, she was pissed, pissed. You know, no, no doubt. Like again, this so is all on me. me. And, and so, so we had to work through, through that and. At, At some point, and this is the miracle, miracle of Alanon, and the a or just the miracle of like recovery, however we want to define that. And then I do want, want to ask you kind of for detail, detail about this setup stuff, but uh, uh, where, where she could acknowledge how this goes back to the disease model too. too. If, if I had, I had come, come to her and said her I have cancer, it can't, can't work. work I, need I need treatment. She would, would have, have said fine, sure, we'll sell the house, whatever. And obviously it's not the same thing exactly. So, so at, at some, some point she, she could acknowledge, acknowledge her part in the situation. situation. That's when really we start, start to, to put, put everything back together. together. And it was so, I sure. know that, that kind of makes sense. sense.
0: No, it's the, it the it, it's the what what do we do with all of this stuff now? Like now we're caught in the middle of all of it,
1: and right, we're, right, we're
0: dealing right. with the fallout. Um, People's boundaries can move. They can, you know, especially I, I've worked with couples where it's if you drink one more time, I'm getting a divorce. And then six months later, once they've seen progress, it's if you drink, we're coming to therapy twice a week.
1: Right, right. And so right.
0: as we as we move forward in therapy and in work, those can move and shift. And I prefer to value marriage and relationships and not overvalue a disease model and so i see the hope and future in a healthy marriage rather than trying to compensate just to get people's heads above water
1: right and and, and, and where, where where do you balance, balance the this is a, a lot of the stuff we work through in the marriage counseling, counseling but like the like. harm that, that i caused her in the lying about the money and the work and just being you also talk in the book about whether or not someone's quote unquote like cheating on their spouse the addiction is cheat like it's emotional cheating or whatever
2: so yeah once sort of
1: that shifted and and like it was sort of like working through my side of it so how do you kind of think about or work with or just from maybe examples like The addict's recovering, changing, becoming uh, hopefully (laughs) a better person.
0: The other person's got their stuff to work through.
1: But where does that maybe it's about everything or the ball of responsibility lie? Like, I I think maybe it's a bit harsh in some sense, but at some point I was like, I'm not the problem anymore. Mm
2: -hmm. Like, if 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 we're
1: going to go on, like, you got to deal with your shit, too
0: there's a fundamental dynamic shift that has to take place. Um, the emotional affair part is incredibly important because it helps give voice to what partners are feeling. Um, if you were to just change the dynamic and say, well, um, I'm sleeping with, um, this woman that I met Okay. Uh, Then all of a sudden, afterward, you say, Well, you know, I've got to work on myself. She's going to say, Bitch, what you mean? (laughs) Like, you're going to go work on yourself? Right. And, you know, let's say that he does, you know, get all of that healing and then tries to switch over to her. There's still an emotional affair. I mean, it's marked by intensity because it is rather intense to say, Hey, this big thing happened let's not talk about it. And so the fundamental shift that has to happen is there are points of personal responsibility, but instead of it being this person against this person, we put the couple against the problem, right? So it's, okay, how can the two of us work against addiction and what led up to it? You have stuff, you have stuff. That's fair. Okay. We're not going to, kick that away. But how do we put you against this? Right. And that separate thing. um, And I've even had this outside of addiction, like significant mental health issues is how do we take the two of you against her severe depression? How do we make it this problem that you and I can join against? Right. And so we stop identifying as the sickness. We stop identifying as, oh, well, I've just got to work on myself. No, you're not by yourself. You are with a partner, you need to do your own stuff, but it is not helpful to say, I'm going to go work over here and you're going to go work over here. It's the same thing with the therapist, right? Where you separate them in divorce, you bring them back together, they're still going to be pissed (laughs) because they didn't join in it. So that's the short version of the paradigm shift. Right, and, and does that? Can you, you talk about, about the, the? You have a
1: lot of nice, nice sort of metaphors or, metaphors or analogies, like, like the, the bicycle with the kickstand and the. In, and in and triangulation, can you sort, you sort of clarify the triangulation? triangulation. I think that's, that's what, what you're moving to there, there but just, just like what triangulation, triangulation looks, like looks like in that situation, situation. Or, I or I guess with, between me and my wife or other people.
0: Sure, triangulation is something we've known in family systems outside of addiction. um This. This came about a while ago. And the basic idea of it came from when mom and dad cannot resolve their issues. They often will find something to put their issues off onto. Um, typically, that's a kid. And I use, admittedly, some cultural references. Um, here, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but my two favorite are the, you know, here in the South, we are obsessed with sports which is hilarious because none of these kids are going pro and people are losing their religion over it. Um, (laughs) But the thing is, is when they can't address their stuff, when the bicycle and each person being a wheel in the bicycle, when that's not moving when that's not transitioning, but they still want to stay upright, they put off their problems onto a kid. And so that kid is either the best thing that has ever existed or they're oftentimes the worst thing that has ever existed and we blame all of our stuff on them. Right. And so we see that in family systems without addiction. Right. However, in addiction, we have that triangle between partners and addiction. So it's the same sort of idea where it's, I don't want to or can't address my stuff. I can't want to, don't want to address my stuff. Let's blame the addiction. Because I mean, theor- theoretically, what's easier to say, Um, I have this crippling fear that my eight-year-old was right and that no one will ever love me and everything here is a sham or I have a drinking problem. <laughs> and so it becomes the source of where we put all of our stuff in that way. And so that's the basics of triangulation. Right.
1: right. And, and then um, as, as you say, say is, is it less bring the the couple together and turn to that so the couple is just one line and then triangulation triangulation is the other issue so so it's you bring you bring the two people on the same page same team against against what what they're they're doing yeah Yeah.
0: it it turns from a triangle to an upside down t where it's the two of us engaging this thing which interestingly enough i said this had not Originally, nothing to do with addiction. Uh, One of the highest rates of divorce outside the first two years of marriage is when all the kids leave the home because that bicycle has been sitting on a kickstand for so long that you knock out those kickstand and all of a sudden the bike is rusted and broken down and they don't know who they are, or who the other person is, Right. But if you take a couple and they can join together, of course, you're going to have unique relationships like my daughter loves to play outside more with my wife than me. But she also loves listening to Metallica with me. Right. And so there's there's unique aspects, but she doesn't get to split us. And we have relation like meaningful emotional connection that at least is not acknowledged and shared with the other parent. Yeah. yeah it's so, so it's so, so, so interesting.
1: interesting. Um, I, I, I guess
0: I'm also, also looking at the, at the time. time.
1: I, pick I think it ran forever. Um, well,
0: Mike, you just got to have me yeah. back
1: then. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Deal. Deal. <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, so then I, don't I don't feel under pressure, pressure to, to, um, to ask. Yeah. so I guess yeah. as,
0: as, as I was making
1: amends for lying her about the working, working stuff and I mean, I actually did go back to playing poker, until, Until my second day was born. You know, when I was, I was ready, ready to, to go back to school and do the same kind of stuff. <laughs> um,
2: I, guess I guess so, I was, as I was making amends to her,
1: she was, was learning, learning to trust me again. <laughs> we were working on therapy. therapy. Um, she acknowledged she her part, part in the thing. Like, like at some, some point, she was like, like yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that, that wasn't nice of me to say to you, you can't, you
2: know, you can't go to treatment,
1: you can go to work and your, your problems, problems are a big deal. deal. Um, so, so she came, came around that, which, which I really, really admire her for. And um, also, mm-hmm. there's a lot of boundaries there, too. For me, at, at some, some point, point, it was just like, like no, nope. <laughs> here's <laughs> the sign. I had, I had a very, very clear, clear sign for her <laughs> um, on my nicely uh, built <laughs> and fence. And, and so she went, oh, no, she did this over. Just like, like in this moment, I'm accessing accessing my admiration for, for for really going through.
2: It's almost hard. I think it's it's harder for the the partner or the family family member to accept their their part
1: in the situation and actually actually do something something about about it it. because yeah, yeah, I mean in fairness, it's like, like, well, (laughs) they're they're not really the problem. And so if they have, you know, to contribute to it, but like, so as soon as we can do that, I guess we, we did. Turn into, turn into that, that upside down, down tea in a sense, sense and like, okay, okay we're, we're on the same page. page. We, we don't, don't want, want to get divorced. divorced. We, we want to have you know a relatively, relatively happy home inter- inter- and right? yeah. Um and right. so yeah, yeah I guess we, we did, did merge into, into that unit. I I still, I'm not going to speak to her, but clearly I also, like I still have remnants, you talk about this in the book too, like long-term recovery and the like, these things are going to come up. I do get triggered into that withdrawing kind of idea like, I want to run and hide, she's the bad
0: guy. (laughs) If she would just change my life, would be better. A hundred percent. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and this kind of ties into a little bit of what you said said
1: earlier in terms terms of like, like, this is not a like six six session, 10, 12 session thing. How, how, how do you help guide people or in your experience, how people dealt with the reality that this is a long term thing. And of course you get get better and healthier and we're humans. humans, How do you see couples? heal long term or people heal long term as, as a therapist, therapist do how you fit into that, into that picture.
0: picture part of dealing with that is the beginning of our conversation okay so if this is not a disease right. <laughs> holy shit, how did it come this far right um, maybe this has been building for two decades does that mean it takes two decades of therapy well no right but once you can extract that disease model idea and you can put together how things have built, um, then people can see, oh, so this isn't just I tripped and fell into addiction, right? Um, the other part is, you know, we have this idea because of the disease model of let's get the treatment and then we can move on, Right. Unfortunately, that's not really the case. And, you know, am I an advocate for therapy? Well, yeah, obviously I'm a therapist, Um, but you can absolutely do work on your own. But the chances are that you have these rather large blind spots, which got you to the place where you were. And so buying into therapy long term can be more of what are you willing to sacrifice in order to have this better life, right? Would you be willing to reduce your risk of relapse by 80%, but you have to drive, this is what I drive, a 2015 Corolla for the next two years, right? You can't upgrade your car, you can't do any of that. You have to put all the money into therapy. Would you be willing to do that? And typically the people that say yes, don't have to be here nearly as long (laughs) the people that say, no, they'll come for a few months and then they'll just kind of float off and then I'll see them a year later. Right. And so for, what is it worth to you? What is it worth to sit and really address this? And are you willing to let me ask questions like, what did you get out of him overdosing for the third time? And once people can engage that, that's a big part. If they have kids, The best thing that I can do for them is look over and say, if you do not fix this, they will either mirror it or repeat it because of how kids work and how they learn. If you do not address your issues, your kid will either become the addict in either direct or symbolically, or they'll become an enabler, either direct or um, in support or whatever it is. And so it's not just you. It's not just your partner. If you are going to have kids or if you already have kids and you don't get on this, they have a very high likelihood of either becoming an addict or being married to one.
1: Yeah. And that just brought up something you wrote in the book, which I wanted to pick your brain about, um, which was very much my situation was or what what I think helped me a lot was. If, if you, you put anything, anything in front of your recovery, recovery you're, you're going to lose it. You write in this somehow, and how that, that can, can be unfair sometimes to the spouse or the, spouse the family, family or whatever. Um, um, I guess I didn't, I didn't have know. my son was born. I think my, my wife got pregnant, pregnant with, with my first child. child. I <laughs> was sober for two weeks. weeks. Yeah, what's up, kids? kids. <laughs> 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 Oh my, oh my god, god. that's so all another other funny story. story but um i yeah. really did hold that to, i think i still do hold that to heart like i think i've, think I've been, slacking been slacking a bit lately like, you know, on my sort of meditation my, and my you kind know, of personal, personal work, work but. but can you just yeah, say i to speak to that, that. I, I understand, understand that that's actually a really helpful way to approach it, it. um because, um, because I, always I always told myself the story if i do put my recovery first then, then that, that means, means I'll be a better, a better dad, a better husband, a better, et yeah. yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe you could, could talk, talk about some of the
0: problems with that approach. I can't ever be upset about people gla- grabbing life rafts. Right. <laughs> so somebody comes in and says, well, I have to keep my recovery first. I'm glad you're not dead. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Let's start there. I'm glad you're not <laughs> dead. Um, unfortunately, Putting your recovery first means sacrificing other things. Sure. And if that means for your spouse, maybe they can be on board with it. But we talked about that earlier about sacrifices and low expectations. But also, is there a problem with teaching that to your kids too? Because kids don't quite understand all of that. And if dad's always at AA meetings, sure, you can explain that it's healthy for him, but he just knows dad isn't around, right? Right. On the other hand, if this isn't a disease and addiction isn't the main issue, it's hard to validate that as the number one priority. If it is an attachment issue, which I talk about in the book, if it really is a systems issue and a relationship issue and you were to put that second, then you're not giving it the full energy that you could be, right? Um, You're not engaging in what actually heals it all. Now, is recovery important? Well, duh, <laughs> right? Like you don't yeah. want to ruin your kids' college money because you know you decided to go out on a bender and blow everything. Right. 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 I'm on board. But if you're a healthy spouse, if you're a healthy parent, well, of course you're going to do these little things that you need to in order to stay healthy. Yeah, yeah that actually helps. helps. I, I often I don't
1: know just the, the way, way I think about things. About things. I forget.
2: The nuances of certain things like that. So, mm-hmm. for me, this, this idea, idea of putting, putting my, my recovery, recovery first
1: did not take away from being a dad or a spouse or whatever. It enhanced. And I also do see
0: situations
1: where it takes away from, as you outline, right? If, if dad's always at the, the meetings or this or that. that what What the fuck fuck. that's my dad i need need that person here here. sure um yeah Yeah, i I guess it helps helps me to formulate it in a way that's probably more thorough thorough. Mm -hmm. Um, i'm a very engaged parent Mm -hmm. i guess but Mm
2: -hmm. um, so So when so maybe
1: maybe it's it's not better to be something like yeah, yeah, you, you can't, can't have these things if you're, things if you're not sober and taking care, care of yourself. And, and at, at the same, same time, all these other parts of your life are important, are important and need to, to be integrated into this, this idea, idea, right?
0: Over over cover. Cover. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I've i realized that for me and my mental health and the way that I do everything is I have to continually play and engage in a creative part of myself, particularly music. Like I love mm-hmm. guitar and I've spent too much money on guitars. So don't tell my wife I said that. Um, but that's something that I know that I need to upkeep. And I realize that when I'm not doing so well, that stuff naturally falls away and I come back to it. Right. Mm. Uh, although if I'm living a healthy life and keeping track of everything, I'm gonna do it anyway.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Um I guess, I guess this is sort of, sort of I'm not sure kind of where to choose your own, own adventure, adventure idea I want to ask you about, about maybe, maybe as, as a as an individual, individual like, like clinician in terms terms of working with individuals, just what your your thoughts thoughts are on sort of the process process of the steps. And I, in my, I don't know if it's a delusion delusion or not, in In my my thoughts thoughts of going back back to school to to do a PhD in counseling counseling, psych, I would probably probably focus on why the steps work, like like, psychologically speaking. for Sure. And, and I maybe so, so that's kind of what I to ask you. If, if we take, take the principles, principles of the steps, honesty, hope, mm-hmm. faith, courage, integrity, <laughs> humility, I mean, these are all nice, nice sounding words, obviously, but they do actually, actually transform, transform people. Sure. And yeah, right. I, I guess. And, and and I do know I've been to a couple when I would go, go to play the World Series, like, like when I was sober, so bad. I'd go to A meetings in Vegas. And, Vegas. They and they were definitely different, different than they are in, in Toronto. Toronto. Um uh, I mean, Yeah, so there's, so there's obviously, obviously a different vibe. vibe. And, and I, I do actually, actually pointed out, that out in the book, kind of like figuring out where that home for you is. is. Mm-hmm. Like, don't just go to one meeting and make assumption. and I don't think there's much literature on this, like why, if, mm-hmm. if we, if we were, were to take a biological, behavioral, um, moral family systems lens to why the steps actually work and what they, they do for people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: can you maybe just, just speak to, to that and your experience, experience of observing and when know about it? it?
0: So one thing I would caution you specifically, but also just in general, um, if you go to the 12 traditions, I can't remember if it's four or six. Um, it's AA will not lend out its name to any outside entity, Yes, which <laughs> makes it so that it's hard to do research on it because one yeah. of their traditions <laughs> says that they're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. right yeah. And so I, I haven't really seen that acknowledged all that much. And so that, that's one thing that bothers me is people are like, well, there's all this research on AA and nobody talks about how they dealt with the tradition that says that you can't. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But there are general veins in AA that I think are amazing. One of them being community, right? It, especially in modern Western men, I think it's especially prevalent here in America. Is the individualized rugged man, and one of the great things about AA is you have a whole bunch of men that have said that ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what is what's going to be helpful in. Uh, a lot of the protective factors is just knowing you have a community of people that will engage with you, right? There's also a set way to see a path forward, right? right. right. And in different sponsors will, you know, say, well, you have to take a year on step one or you have to take all. Okay, fine. But in general, there's this idea that one there's something outside of you. Um, the whole f- faith part has sort of floated away over the past few decades and it's become more of this amorphous thing. Um, but there's a way to connect and serve other people. Um, and so for that, there's a lot of protective stuff because we know one of the best things against anxiety and depression is volunteer work and exercise. If you do right. both regular exercise and regular volunteer work, it tends to be comparable to medication or sometimes better. And yep. so you get some of those factors within AA, now granted, there's too much coffee and too much smoking of cigarettes. That's a whole other <laughs> argument to be yeah. made, but the, all of those things are protective factors. And so if there's research into it and seeing mm-hmm. the people who have engaged in what they've seen be different in their lives, not just, oh, this step did this and this step did this. That's where right. I think a lot of the benefit is.
1: Right, right on. Yeah. Do you, Do you know, know uh, Anna Lemke? She wrote Dopamine, Dopamine Nation.
0: I've heard of it before, but I haven't it. actually read it. Yeah, it's a great, it's great book.
1: And, and she's a psychiatrist from Stanford. Stanford. I think she she teaches, teaches as well. She sort of is fond of the and steps and has similar... I, I don't, don't want to misquote her. Uh, yeah. she,
0: she agreed, agreed to be, be on the podcast, podcast actually. So,
1: cool. so, so I don't, don't want to misquote her, but... Like, <laughs> uh, Sort, sort of the, the problems of with the, the medicalization of mental illness, addiction, she, she touches, touches on that, which, which I, I admire better. And, but, and, but, but to your, your point here, she talks, talks about pro social shame, shame, which is, I is, think, and, and how AA is a great, is a great environment, environment for to engage in pro social shame, shame. And and you talked a lot about in the book, which I definitely relate to personally, but just more as a human being, like shame, guilt, remorse, it's it, those are difficult deep emotions. And we need to learn how to process them if we are to be free or healthy or whatever. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So yeah, maybe just kind kind of, can you talk talk a little bit about shame, addiction, addiction, and this idea idea of pro-social shame, if if that resonates with you? The definitions of guilt and shame, I think, are important, and they seem to shift depending on who you ask. I typically define guilt as I did something wrong and shame as I am something wrong. So when it comes to pro-social shame, I tend to think of that as more guilt-based or recognition of what you've become than it is, you dumb alcoholic, get your shit together. You suck. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, because so I in AA often. often. Like, like there's, there's that, that kind of,
1: you're a dumb, dumb alcoholic, like sit down, down shut dude, shut whatever. Up. dude, whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, to be fair, that's the intensity triangle. We're bound, yeah. and you're bound to me by me telling you you're a dumbass. Right, right, right. And, and <laughs> it's, right. Not, it's now, not like, could uh, that,
1: would that be considered, considered an unhealthy triangulation in AA for, for the people in AA that are, and, and, and it's, it's important, important to acknowledge, acknowledge. My, my sponsor always said, remember, you're in a room full of sick people. people. Okay, so. so yes. yes. Just remember so, that. that, but it's are really really kind of veering us off. It's okay. shame.
0: Yeah. yeah. And to answer that, yes, because it is absolutely can easily be a triangle because your anxiety is being mitigated in AA and not with the people that live life with you and need you to be anxious around them so they can solve issues. Um, when it comes to the shame specifically and the pro-social shame, there does need to be an element of accountability, You know, do you, do you go up and say, Hey, I screwed up. What's the intention behind it? Is it for everybody to go, Oh buddy. And you treat them like a hurt puppy. Is it the, you know, we all sit there and throw tomatoes at you or something, or is it a recognition and acknowledgement? Yeah, you screwed up. Now, what are we going to do about it? I think that middle ground is where you see a lot of the positive benefits from it. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I think kind I of just need, need, to need to get, get more clear in my own thinking about this. My experience of AA and set
1: work and, and Al-Anon, Al-Anon and I did a lot of Al-Anon work myself too, was, was very positive. And I, I think because I, because I as, as they, they say, say take, what take what you like and leave the rest, I sort of was very careful about who I listened to and why the guidance I followed. And I get that There's problems with it all, for sure. And And some people don't have good experiences. I don't even know what what my question is, but I'm just talking about, like, how is it possible possible to create something like that in a therapeutic therapeutic environment? And you write about about, in your book too, a a bit bit about like work and stuff. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, and maybe maybe we can end end on this. this. Um, We we both have have to get to to work (laughs) soon.
0: Yeah, I (laughs) guess... A, a reflection on how groups and,
1: and, that, and that, that pro-social social shame, shame. Like, like the environment, environment of, of like, yes, this is fucked, is fucked up, up, I fucked up, fucked what, what are we gonna do we going to do about it? it learning from, from each other, how, how you see groups help how people feel.
0: One thing that I don't want to do is just create a group where it's just addicts, because I think there's enough of those. What I tend to prefer is for people to engage in social groups that they can engage in they ha- or they haven't or the ones that they're already involved in. Whether that's friend groups, um, people will be connected to like religious institutions or things in that way because you to create a whole new environment, you can create something similar to AA, right? Um, now, these groups obviously need to have some understanding of addiction as it is, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to show up to a church and say, I smoke crack. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> right. Uh, sure. but having these groups that you already know you need to engage in, you're just, ha- you just haven't, I think opens up a whole lot more into other aspects of life to where addiction and the results of it. Don't just become this idol we sacrifice to every day, that it's something that we can remember It's something that we can acknowledge, but there's also so much more life to live than just being sober, right? Like if we engage with people that either, you know, they have been addicted and they're sober now or people that never have been, there's an element of hope to say, okay, they might not be like me, but that's what life can be, right? And that's my big fear in creating a whole nother group is, well, we could end up just creating this thing where all we talk about is addiction, and all we talk about is all of these problems, and then you kind of get it cycled, and we start wearing our addiction like a badge. And, and is that, that sort of like,
1: like are we going to stop, stop talking? talking? That's the, it, my, my Buddhist sort of mindfulness self is, self is that's, that's where we get identified with things, and and, and, and sort of, and that obviously creates more suffering, suffering. and, and you, you do see that, that in AA a lot, right? Because people get super attached and identified to the, 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 the role or the whatever of being an alcoholic or addict, and, and therefore they sort of maybe cut themselves off from other potential. potential. I, don't I don't like identity as a sense, sense of self, but yeah.
0: Here's, here's the short version. The people that have problems with that sound like the people that never grew up past high school and always go back and talk about high school.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. awesome. That's, that's such, such a good... good. Uh, I'm, I'm going, going to, to say one more thing. thing. In, so In So I'm part wonder. of Marijuana Anonymous trauma, uh-huh. which, which is sort of, of a bunch of... Judgment, judgment judgment bias, signal, bias, signal there. there. A bunch <laughs> of, of people who don't, don't think they have a problem. Sure. Um, they they got, got caught up, just went all the way up to world service level with the, the word they want to replace all the words god in the, in the literature, literature with higher power because mm-hmm. the argument was that it's sort of like oppressive to people who've been marginalized by god and religion, religion. I mean, it, was it was just so not the point of these groups, groups. and yeah, like you, you said, said it's like, like if we can't it took it me a couple of years to be honest, get to get over that god stuff like, stuff, like, to, like to say word god because my own interpretations of that but as you said i like how you put it it's like at, At least, if I, I understand you right, can't you get, get over, over some of the words and ideas, and ideas because we're, we're acting like children and like being stubborn and resentful, resentful or, something or something like that. Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah. It, met. Yeah. If you don't like the dynamic and you suggest something and they don't go for it, you can throw a fit or you could make something yourself. Right. 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 Go, make, go make a separate group. You can right. even call it MA and just change the language. like Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay cool. cool. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I wanted to just share
1: uh, a little so can get yeah. a video here. So, so the book is "To, to Those Left Behind: Helping partners, partners and Families Understand and Heal from Addiction." Conference guide. Okay. We, we don't have much engagement, engagement on, on YouTube, YouTube but otherwise, otherwise, if anyone comments and, and says, "I don't uh, want a book," we're, we're going to buy a book and, and send it to them. them. So, so please, please do, do that in the comment section or on Spotify or Apple. Overcast, we have a lot of listeners overcast, on overcast. If you're listening on overcast, please uh,
0: do, do that, that or send us an email. And Travis, I'm going to take you up on uh, potentially having another conversation one day. day. But just thank, thank you so much
1: for helping me learn more about this, more about this and formulate my thoughts more clearly and sharing all your wisdom and everything and else with people. If, if there's,
0: there's any, any sort of lasting things you want to say or guiding people to your website and where they can learn more about your work, please. Sure. My website is travistompsoncounseling.com. I have links to um, any kind of media that I've done or articles, anything like that. Um, this book is super helpful for the people that feel like they've been left behind. And I love speaking and speaking in venues, podcasts. I mean, I'm a therapist, I speak all day. So <laughs> um, that's gonna be honestly a big part of my career for the rest of my life is advocating and talking about things like this.
1: Awesome, thank, so thank you. you. And, and all the links to the your stuff, stuff will be in the sort of description and shoutouts, so anybody so wants access so so there. Aaron, again. Travis, thank, thank you, you so much. much.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I am very grateful that you watched to the end of this video. Please click one of the boxes to watch more of our content, and otherwise have a great day. Peace out.